Welcome back, everyone. This is Austin Roberts. Here on the Ecosiv Podcast, we engage leading thinkers in conversations about the kinds of transformations required to create a more sustainable, peaceful, and just world. The work of the Ecosiv Institute as a whole significantly depends on the generosity of supporters and listeners like you. So if you enjoy this podcast and value the many other projects that we are engaged in, please consider making a donation at ecosiv.org slash donate. For today's episode, I had the opportunity to speak with Jason W. Moore. Jason is an environmental historian and historical geographer at Binghamton University and the author of 2015's Capitalism and the Web of Life, Ecology and the Accumulation of Capital. He also edited the 2016 book Anthropocene or Capitalocene, and more recently with Raj Patel, he co-authored A History of the World and Seven Cheap Things. Throughout our conversation, we explore many of the major themes and ideas that Jason has developed across his published writings. We begin by discussing his major critique of capitalism as a world ecology, which he argues depends on a practice of cheapening nature. We also talk about his critique of mainstream environmentalism, modernity's violent split between civilization and savagery, putting relational philosophies to work, the anthropocene capitalist scene debate, the collapse of capitalist civilization, and what gives him hope. And now, here's Jason Moore. Welcome, everyone. I'm pleased to be here with Jason Moore today. Jason Moore is an environmental historian and historical geographer at Binghamton University, where he is professor of sociology. He is a prolific and widely recognized scholar and the author of numerous articles about environmental history, capitalism, social theory, and world ecology. Some of our listeners might know about Jason's writings on the concepts of the Anthropocene and the Capitalocene, which have been mentioned on previous episodes of this podcast. His most recent book is A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things, co-authored with Raj Patel. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. It's a thrill to be here. So I'm particularly excited to have the chance to talk with you about your work. As I've told you, your work has been a significant source of inspiration for my own academic research. Having said that, my goal for our conversation today is to hopefully provide an introduction to our listeners to some of the key ideas and proposals that you've made across a number of your published writings from 2015's Capitalism in the Web of Life on through a more recent short essay that you published in May's title, The Capitalocene and Planetary Justice. And actually, I'll include a link to that article for our listeners in the show notes. So I want to start with your critique of capitalism that you developed in Capitalism in the Web of Life, where you, you argue that capitalism is sort of the main source of today's planetary crises. And so I kind of want to work through the core argument there. Well, this is, of course, something that other critical scholars and eco-Marxists have argued before. The historical and critical analyses of capitalism that you developed in this book have, it seems to me, importantly shifted conversations around eco-Marxism in new directions. So I'm wondering if you can help us understand your central thesis in this book, which, as I see it, you summarize in a kind of threefold way. First, that capitalism emerged in the long 16th century, Second, that it was co-produced by human and extra-human natures in the web of life. And third, that it cohered by what you call the law of cheap nature. So obviously there's a lot to unpack there. So what is the political importance of recognizing for you this early history of capitalism 
and what's really at stake from a world ecology perspective. So here I'm thinking not just academically, but also from an activist perspective on this issue. It's a fantastic question. And I would begin by repeating, I think one of the first lines in the introduction to capitalism in the web of life, where I say, this is an invitation to a conversation. And it seems to me that we have had unduly narrow and strict dominant conceptions of what is nature, what is society, or what is capitalism. And part of what I and a, a growing number of co-thinkers have been wrestling with is precisely how do we put together some of the really big and fundamental questions of our times, the questions of, of sustainability in the biosphere, of domination and oppression, especially around race and gender, sexuality, colonialism, and the questions of the, this beast of endless accumulation, the endless growth machine of capitalism. And so drawing on a long path of research in my own life of looking at environmental history, it was never just the environment in the way that we learned to think about nature after 1968. It was never just the environment. The questions of the devastation of soils and forests was always linked to, for example, in this period of the 15 and 1600s, to the creation of a world color line, of plantation slavery, of industrialization, which in fact begins not in Manchester, but on the plantations. And so this was a way of rethinking capitalism historically and really going beyond the economic. And so when we say, yes, capitalism is driving the biospheric crisis, what I and others in world ecology are talking about is in part capitalism as a system of endless growth or a system of endless accumulation, we are also charting the ways in which that system of endless accumulation has had to go beyond itself to conquer new frontiers of cheap nature, not only cheap land or raw materials or coal fields or oil wells, but also the cheap nature of human beings. And so that links up with one of the other themes I just mentioned, this theme of oppression, especially the racialization and feminization of cheap labor, which as we know from recent world history over the past 30 or 40 years has been fundamental, but was fundamental from the beginning. And so I talk about something called cheap nature to put together two really major moments in the making of climate crisis today. One is cheapening in the sense of big businesses drive to reduce the cost in price terms and dollar sign terms. But another is the moment of cheapening the lives and labors of women, nature, and colonies in Maria Mises' uh, great turn of phrase. And when we put together these moments, the oppression moment of cheapening and the exploitation political economy moment of cheapening, we end up with a web of life that is fundamentally transformed. And what's at stake here, and we can talk more about the history in just a moment, but what's at stake when we put the relations of power and accumulation long before the steam engine at the forefront is we end up with an account of climate crisis, which says it's not simply about a state shift in the biosphere. It is that, it is that biospheric crisis with climate apartheid, 
with climate patriarchy, with the climate class divide, where you have eight to 50 people, depending on the study, owning more wealth than the bottom 3.6, maybe 4 billion people on the planet. So how do we find a conversation that can put all of these absolutely pivotal moments at the heart of our understanding of the climate crisis, but also at the heart of our understanding of the politics of the climate crisis? Right. You know, and this reminds me of something you said in that more recent article on the capitalist scene, where you say that mainstream environmentalism since 1968 has been a complete disaster, right? And I'm wondering if, if that has to do with this kind of a lack of awareness or attention to this deeper, longer history of capitalism and this inattention to this core concept that you develop of cheap nature. What do you mean by that, that pretty sharp critique of environmentalism? And, and is there a way to move beyond that? Is there, is there a course correction to be made through this kind of greater historical understanding of capitalism as you outline it? It's such an important question. The course correction has already been advanced, uh, albeit in provisional form, by environmental justice. So what we now know as environmental justice has a much longer history well before the 1991 meeting of uh, activists of color and the 1987 Church of Christ report on environmental pollution and, and toxic waste siting in the United States. It has a much longer history. And even when we think of 1968, we can go back to Martin Luther King being assassinated in, while he was supporting the Memphis sanitation workers, which is a great example of how the questions of race and work and environment are all coming together in this crucial moment. So when I criticize environmentalism, I'm very much criticizing the big E environmentalism right. of, of that era, but sadly of the era that we're living in right now, where the imaginary is one of an external threat of the climate crisis, and we, an abstract humanity, needs to go out and save nature. Now, what life on this planet needs is not to be saved. It needs justice. And I think that's why I began to talk about planetary justice, very much inspired by environmental justice movements, climate justice movements, and food justice and food sovereignty movements, which are all bringing together these questions of the web of life and power and justice. And how, how do we take the world as it is? as this messy ecology of power, capital, and nature, and move it towards something that is not only sustainable, but just. So that's one part of the answer to your question. The other, and this is really a sensitive thing, I think, to say out loud. While there has been a, a long tradition of critiques of mainstream environmentalism as uh, at best uh, uneven around questions of race and class, I think we can go further than that. I think that there is a need for mainstream environmental politics, uh, the World Wildlife Federation, Natural Resources Defense Council style of environmentalism. I think it's time to have something analogous to a truth and reconciliation moment, akin to what's happened after, say, apartheid in South Africa. And that's not just a, 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 an accidental comparison. Uh, when the Sierra Club published in 1968 the population bomb written by Paul and Ann Ehrlich, 
David Brower, who was the leader of the Sierra Club in the 50s and 60s, talks about a South African conservationist who had, in other circumstances, praised uh, uh, conservationism as extending the white dominion over nature. And of course, the Sierra Club has its own unsavory uh, racist past, but also racist present, if you will, at least up to 2004, when the immigration, the, the sort of immigration control politics was finally beat back in, in the club. I think it goes even bigger than this, that between 1968 and let's say 1974, we see the emergence of a global environmental imaginary that is in many ways a kind of alternative way of, of looking at the planet in an era of unprecedented social revolt. And Richard Nixon, in his second State of the Union address in 1970, gives a very uh, uh, pro-environment speech saying, this is something that we can all find common cause around, no matter what our differences are. So that's just a little taste of what we need to go back and look at this history of not just populationism, but how populationist thinking was always tied to a fear of not too many people, but too many brown people, and of a fear of communism as a kind of strategy of more equal development. Now, the Soviets were still uh, practicing a form of modern development. So the problem wasn't that they were socialist, but that they were way more equal than anything the Americans had to offer. Mm. And that was always the danger of the third world challenge. So the big environmental imaginary, as it emerges after 1968, is really a pro-systemic way of restoring a vision for capitalism in an era of unprecedented social revolt and anti-colonial revolt. So you were just outlining a lot of the kind of ethical, uh, political blind spots of the environmental movement. But for you, this is in part at least rooted in a problem with the environmental imaginary. Uh, sometimes you call it green thought uh, or green arithmetic or Cartesian dualism. So in your thesis, you talk about the co-production of human and non-human natures is crucial to recognize. But that has not been so clearly understood by perhaps mainstream environmentalism or green thought. And so there's been this at least maybe a covert dualism, even though there's been a denial that there's dualistic thinking in environmentalism, that has somehow lingered on. You even talk about how prior to kind of modern Cartesian dualism, medieval Europeans understood humans and non-humans in kind of a more holistic way. But then later in modernity, there's this violent split between nature, society. You also talk about this split between civilization and savagery. So can you kind of help us understand how these conceptual binaries were used knowingly or unknowingly to support capitalist civilization as it banded over the centuries? In other words, what are the material consequences of these ideas for human and extra-human natures? It's so important because... Economic thought, radical and mainstream, and a lot of Marxist thought, although with, ex with important exceptions, has not been able to handle the problem of capitalism as a mode of thought and capitalism as what I will call a geoculture. So capitalism operates through a certain kind of cultural mode of production or reproduction, and that's very abstract. So I want to go zero in on, on one of the, the, the sets of languages that was used 
very clearly and consciously by colonial powers and planters and uh, merchants in the 16th, 17th centuries, sometimes even a little bit uh, earlier, always much later, which was this divide between civilization and savagery. And this was a way of understanding the world that overlapped with what we might remember from our textbooks, the scientific revolution and the discovery of nature as a whole, the discovery of the web of life. With and within that was a kind of binary code at the heart of capitalist power. And it, that is related very, very tightly to endless accumulation, that's, which together brought us to the climate crisis. That is this line between civility and, and savagery. So to be a civilized person was to be white, rich, powerful, educated in some combination. And everyone else was either not part of civilization or not yet, with a few few exceptions. So women in early modern Europe, but in the colonial world, of course, as well, were savages, the savages of Europe in Sylvia Federici's turn of phrase. In the Americas, indigenous peoples were called by the, uh, the Iberians, by the Spaniards, naturales, a term which used to mean the resident of a town, but increasingly came to mean part of nature. There were, so the, the, this, this divide between civilization and nature was always a practical tool of empires, a practical tool of policymakers uh, from, from the very beginning all the way into uh, the past century. For the Iberians, it was... Uh, a version of uh, a, a terrible phrase which we associate with, with the Nazis in Auschwitz, work will make you free. That was essentially the motto of Christianization under Spanish rule. And we now understand that the, uh, the tremendous death toll uh, in the Americas was as much through colonialism and imposed famine and work and enslavement as it was uh, the, the work of microbes. In fact, the two connected, they bundled in the language that I use in, in Web of Life. But we don't need to leave it there. We can look at the British project in North America based around uh, the practices that really embodied John Locke's uh, philosophy of improvement. And so uh, those who improved the land could have title to it. Indigenous peoples were part of nature. They lived in a state of nature. Indeed, when Locke writes, and here is philosophy at work, when Locke writes the Constitution for the Carolinas in the uh, 1680s, more or less, he forbids English settlers from entering into contracts with indigenous peoples. Why? Because indigenous peoples are not part of civilization. They are not civilized. They are not part of society. And we can carry that all the way up into the civilizing mission of the new imperialism and the scramble for Africa at the end of the 19th century, and again to the American project of decolonization, but capital D development. You know, the rest of the world needed to be developed. Instead of talking about civilization or Christianization, it was development. And so at each stage, capitalist power reinvents this dualism of civilization and savagery. 
And the term that, that some scholars use for this, it sounds really abstract, but I don't think it is, is that these are real abstractions. They're ideas that are like the operative assumptions of the policymakers and the planners. So, in, and, and Timothy Mitchell has done this with the idea of the economy, which is to- very, very closely linked. So what happens in some of the discussions, and I think this is where environmentalists sometimes get very angry, is that, and it's true even for uh, many eco-socialists, they don't see that when there are two meanings to the word nature. One is the nature and civilization as these projects of great powers and big business. So there's the idea and the practice of cheap nature in the way that I talked about this double cheapening of uh, degrading the life and work of uh, the vast majority of humans, but also of reducing in price cheap oil, cheap food, etc. But there's also this other reality that you uh, rightly keep pointing to, which is co-production, which is that everything that we are doing at every moment, including this conversation on this podcast, is a co-produced reality. It is, we are not only shaping in this double material and uh, cultural sense uh, uh, the web of life, but we are also being transformed by it. There's no more clear example of this than climate history, not only the climate history of the moment, but the fact that capitalism emerges in the Little Ice Age, which was extremely unusual for a dynamic civilization to do. It was a climate conditions which had essentially undermined feudal civilization in the 14th and 15th centuries. And now you have uh, this other capitalism that is, is taking shape. And in the worst of the Little Ice Age, we have this classic philosophy, uh, early modern philosophy of Hobbes and Leviathan, John Locke, uh, Descartes. These are climate change philosophers. They don't realize it, but they are writing in the absolute worst and most destabilized moment of the Little Ice Age. And also, not accidentally, the most intense period of the formation of the world color line of plantation slavery and the real consolidation of European colonial empires between 1550 and 1700. That's just an incredibly eye-opening historical perspective on this. And something that we haven't quite addressed here is in the midst of criticizing this dualist habit of modernity, uh, whether it's explicit or implicit, you importantly develop a relational ontology. So you, you point to a number of philosophers who have inspired you to think in more relational terms to challenge these kinds of dualisms. And most significantly, I think for you, uh, on my reading would be Marx. But you also point to thinkers like Bruno Latour and, and John Cobb, and the latter of whom I should say is kind of the visionary behind EcoCiv. So especially since we share this common ground philosophically, John Cobb and, and others like him have been trying to think relationally about nature for decades now. And you rightly point out that it doesn't seem to have taken hold, obviously. I mean, look at the predicament that we're in. So you are developing a relational philosophy inspired by them, but you're trying to push it in new directions. You're trying to say, we have to figure out how to use relational philosophies that directly challenge the dualist framing of world history to put our philosophies to work, is I think a phrase that you use. At one right. so, so for those of us who are steeped in relational ways of thinking, how do we actually begin to put those to work, do you think? 
Well, I think two observations is are these, and then I think we need to go beyond even that. One is that we have to bring to bear our philosophy to accounts of the crisis as it's actually unfolding and accounts of the crisis as it has been developing over the past 500 years. And for all I know, maybe we want to extend that in a different way to the whole history of civilization in the Holocene over the past 12,000 years. The other is that we need to escape uh, really the great weakness of philosophy, which is nobody can understand it. Mm-hmm. And relatedly, and here I'll, you know, I'll pick on people like uh, Timothy Morton, who, seems to, who has very good things to say, uh, but I'm a fairly bright guy and I can follow him clearly maybe a third of the time. And that's not sufficient. Uh, now, not everything has to be uh, crystal clear when we think philo- philosophically and relationally. You know, we need to be comfortable, as Donna Haraway reminds us, of living in the mess and living in the, in the muddle. But there's also a danger toward a kind of depoliticization. And here, I mean, counterintuitively, I would say Latour represents that danger uh, very clearly. It's a kind of relational philosophy, in my view, suitable for neoliberal times. When I hear him speak and read Latour, I wonder, where is the critique of capitalism? Mm. So on the other hand, there seems to be a, a, a great resistance among certain strains of radical thought, not just Marxism, to philosophy and to philosophical thinking, which is, which is odd. When Marx says philosophers have only interpreted the world, the point is to change it, he's not saying we don't need philosophy. Right. He's still, we still need philosophy. So I think there are several things going on here. Now, you mentioned the work of, of uh, uh, John Cobb in the book, uh, uh, Birch and Cobb published The Liberation of Life, yeah. is, I think, a significantly underappreciated classic in what I would see as, as the lineages of world ecology. I think our task is to move beyond an ecological holism. Mm. And I mean that in a fairly specific way. I think that we have a philosophy, both Marxist and non-Marxist, a relational philosophy of the web of life that is separate from other holisms, other philosophies of even relational ontologies of, say, gender, capital, power, and all the rest. I see this very clearly these days with a, I'm not going to call it a a divide because I don't think it is. I think it's a gap between what is now social reproduction theory or what Frazier and Arutza and Bhattacharya are calling the feminism for the 99% and the concerns of uh, around the web of life. One of the reasons I wrote Capitalism in the Web of Life was precisely to put together historically the radical philosophies and radical historical traditions of labor, life, and gender into a conversation. So that's one set of observations I would make. And I guess I would insist that we need to... We need to have the philosophical debates that are abstract. I think we also have a responsibility, an ethical and political responsibility to turn those into stories, into histories, and and into a political program. That's easier said than done because you can't simply convert one into the other. At at each point, you have enormous uh, problems of translation. One of the challenges that I've faced in dealing with 
with uh, what has come to be known as eco-socialism is a reluctance to deal with the philosophy and a reluctance to deal with these real abstractions. So that this distinction that capitalism works by continually trying to re recreate civilization and savagery, developed and undeveloped, improved and wasteland, these kind of powerful binaries that are really fundamentally inscribed in our daily lives. We have to take that project seriously, even while we look at the whole process of the web of life, which is now coming in and destabilizing business as usual, politics as usual. That's right. The issue of dualism is also at the center of your concern with the discourse around the Anthropocene. And uh, it's not the only thing that I think you see as a problem with that, but it is one of the driving issues. So let me just say a little bit about the Anthropocene capital scene debate, because you have been crucial for advancing that discussion. Many of our listeners will know about some version of the concept of the Anthropocene, but maybe less familiar with your counter argument for the capital scene. You know, there's a lot of counter scenes these days, the techno scene, the manthropocene, the, the white supremacine. Um, but in my view, I think among these critics, your argument for the capital scene is particularly important and compelling. And I think at least in part, that's because you're careful to show that there are different versions of the Anthropocene at play. And I think that's sometimes uh, missed by some who want to defend the, the geological conception of the Anthropocene. That you're very careful to make these distinctions. So what are these, the two lives of the Anthropocene as you see it? And, right. and is it possible to, to talk about the Anthropocene and the Capitalocene? Is this an either or sort of discussion? Or is the Capitalocene a kind of a critical supplement to Anthropocene discourses? So there are two Anthropocenes. One is the geological Anthropocene. So this is the more technical discussion and research, a uh, set of research agendas um, conducted by geologists, earth system scientists, which is really focused on stratigraphic signals, on these so-called golden spikes. And so now they seem to have more or less settled on the three golden spikes of, of the Anthropocene, uh, residues from nuclear testing, plastics, and chicken bones. Lots and lots of chicken bones. Right. <laughs> And then there is powerfully, and, and we, we need to take this position very seriously, uh, the, the Lewis and Maslin position on what they call the Orbis spike or the global spike, which is the low point in carbon dioxide concentrations reached in the year 1610 as a result of the New World genocides. Right. And that we need to take very, very seriously. And I think that, that Mark and Simon would not, uh, Lewis and Maslin would not object to me sharing this little exchange that we had. I wrote to them and said, it's the geological Anthropocene and it is the historical or geohistorical Capitalocene. And that gets us out of reimposing a dualism, Anthropocene or Capitalocene, which was the title of the edited collection I uh, published with, with some wonderful uh, writers like Christian Parenti and Don Haraway a few years ago. Yes. And, and that was a provocation. So sometimes we need to provoke to bring out the wider discussion. So when people say Capitalocene is a geological era, that's not, that's not my position anyway. It is a geohistorical era in the geological era of the Anthropocene or whatever we end up calling it. Now, the other Anthropocene goes back to 1968 and even earlier, but 68, Spaceship Earth, 
this sense that we're all in this together. We're all responsible. It tells us that every time we turn on a light in our home or uh, buy groceries, we are contributing to our carbon footprint, our ecological footprint. It feeds into this whole neoliberal environmental imaginary, which reduces everything to the individual, reduces the causes to consumption and markets. That's a big problem. It's a big problem empirically. It's a big problem politically, too, because the first step that we need, and this is one of the contributions, I think, politically of the Anthropocene, is basically saying, no, it's not humanity. It's not all humans equally. And we know who precisely. We know that is is driving the climate crisis. We know that the top 100 corporations uh, uh, there were 100 corporations have, have uh, produced 70% of the carbon emissions over the past 150 years. So in other words, they, to paraphrase Utah Phillips, the folk singers, they have names and addresses. We know who has done this. So that's part of it. But there's also, this also speaks to a deeper historical question. And the popular Anthropocene is very much rooted in an older environmental uh, view of history which is very stylized and largely false, which says it all begins with the Industrial Revolution. Mm. And it's, it, once we say it out loud, it's, it's a little bit funny because the historians don't agree on when the Industrial Revolution begins. But the stylized version that we get is England, coal, steam power, that sets the whole world down the road to climate crisis. And there are important kernels of truth in that. But the capitalist thesis says we need to go back earlier to the whole uh, uh, intellectual, political, economic, technological system of conquering the globe and then putting all of nature to work uh, in the interests of, of endless economic growth and capital accumulation for the few. That leads us to important counter stories to the Industrial Revolution model. We would point out, for instance, that the most important machine of the Industrial Revolution is the cotton gin, which magnifies labor productivity 50 times and is a frontier technology that is rooted in the dispossession of indigenous peoples and their extermination, uh, a new wave of racialized slavery, which gets reinvented on, on a massive scale uh, compared to the earlier Atlantic slavery. Uh, it is uh, relying on the unpaid work of generations of indigenous peoples who selected uh, the hirsutum, that was the, the, the technical name of the cotton fiber uh, that was being used, grown in the cotton south. It was so important because it could withstand the machines. It could withstand machine work. So you have the unpaid work of the indigenous peoples who are being driven from their homes and killed. That's fundamental. That's not a, a depend, that's not a secondary story to the Industrial Revolution or the reinvention of the world color line as a force of production. And then we would ask, well, where, where did Europeans or uh, Euro-American states learn how to do this? Well, they learned it in the previous centuries around the, the sugar plantation, around new regimes of, of gender and uh, race and class formation that were all uh, taking shape in the Atlantic world. So we want to be careful about arguments of climate crisis that root things in England, in the Industrial Revolution, in, in Manchester, in the coal fields uh, around Newcastle. That's one part of the story. 
but you can't conceptualize it. You can't really understand what was going on until we bring in gender. Let's remember this is the era of Maltus, who was writing uh, uh, about population explosion at a moment when agricultural productivity had exhausted itself, but after large numbers of peasants had been kicked off the land and the family formation patterns and the gender relations of England in the 18th century were in flux. So there's, there's the, the gendered work of simply producing these human beings to work in the factories as well. So when I say the climate crisis is geophysical, but also a geohistorical moment of climate patriarchy, climate apartheid, climate class divide, that's what the capitalist scene brings up. Now, I have to give this in one last time uh, because people always say capitalocene, that's such an ugly word. And I, I thought about this for a long time. People always say this. And first of all, Anthropocene doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Right. I thought about this for a long time. And I want to suggest or I want to ask, is it possible that mainstream environmentalism has really from 1968 been about avoiding naming the system. And so they've come up with a lot of ways to talk about environmental impacts, ecological footprints, talk about industrial society, we talk about the growth machine, but naming the system of capitalism and imperialism has been strikingly absent from that whole earth imaginary. And so is it possible that this global environmental imaginary has really been rooted in a kind of Cold War anti-communism that says, you know, we're trying to save not just nature, but the free world in some, maybe even unarticulated subconscious way. Right. No, thank you for that. I, I'm incredibly grateful for this ugly word capitalist scene that you've helped develop and, and spread because it, it really does draw out something that, that's left off the discussion when we only talk about the Anthropocene. So, so thank you for that. I sometimes thought about the capitalist scene as the primary driver of the Anthropocene um, as a way to think about that between, as you said, geohistorical conceptions and uh, geological conceptions. And that sounds like the way you're framing it here. Right. I want to move us towards what it looks like to move beyond the capitalist scene. Um, what I noticed uh, in your book with Raj Patel was there's a really clear outline of what you think a post-capitalist world ought to look like, or way, a way to get us there, in other words. And so you talk about this idea of reparations ecology, and I found that to be an important supplement to the conversation that you've already started here. Um, so right. maybe you can walk us through this conception of reparations ecology that you, you developed with Patel, um, because I think it's really important. So reparations ecology is not simply about making cash payments to the victims of whatever environmental injustice or social injustice you can imagine. I think really more fundamentally, it is about ways of remembering the violence of the past in an approach that allows us to heal. And that's crucial to the kinds of uh, politics that we want to build. I think it's, it's reparations ecology is very much focused on a call that is in, in some ways very familiar, but in some ways not made nearly enough, which is how do we build a movement of movements? And how do we understand 
the history, not just of injustices, but the history of movements for justice, for emancipation, as already embodying a kind of environmental justice outlook. And this has been done uh, just in the U.S. context with uh, around uh, movements for racial justice and civil rights. So these always contained a, a fundamental environmental moment to them. I would go a little bit further now. We published A History of the World in Seven Cheap Things about two years ago. I would call for a reconstruction ecology. Mm. And that has several points of reference. One is, in American history, we can look at the, the period uh, more or less immediately after the Civil War, after about a year after the Civil War ends, the radical Republicans, yes, that is actually what they were called in Congress, uh, uh, decided that the plantation aristocracy had come back into power in the South and business as usual was resuming. So they sent the army into the South, imposed a military dictatorship of uh, northern bourgeois capital to open up uh, democracy and the possibilities for some form of racially egalitarian uh, society across the South. So for the first time, there were congressmen and senators and, and sheriffs who were uh, former slaves and, and uh, who were African-Americans. That's an important lesson that we need to be willing to carry uh, forward in an era of climate crisis. Another moment of reconstruction ecology is more or less stating the obvious that in an era of climate crisis at the end of the Holocene, so it makes all the, of the climate changes that we've seen over the past 12,000 years appear very mild in contrast, we are going to see a world in which cities, electrical grids, water systems, food systems have to be rebuilt. So we need to take seriously that element of reconstruction. How do we reconstruct infrastructures that are also carbon neutral or, or carbon absorbing and that are premised on justice, on, on uh, social justice, on an anti-racist, feminist, uh, class justice perspective? That's going to be an enormously difficult challenge. And the history of the 20th century is um, not always a happy one in terms of reconstructing societies or constructing uh, societies or reconstructing social relations that privilege justice and development. The, the history of the 20th century is the challengers to whatever the dominant model of business as usual uh, might be. After World War II, it's Fordism. Today, it's neoliberalism. But significant challengers to those business-as-usual models have been met with ruthless repression and violence. So uh, if we look at the Vietnam War, from which we get the, the word ecocide, we can uh, quote the American military officer during the Tet Offensive in 1968. It became necessary to destroy the village in order to save it. That's a real element that goes far beyond Vietnam. That is the history of uh, American interventions in Korea, of uh, uh, the history of World War II uh, with the Nazis and the Soviet Union. The willingness of great powers, and in, in the past century, especially the United States, to destroy countries in order to save them is 
something that we have to deal with in our politics. And I don't have the answers. It's uncomfortable. But of course, we see this again with Iraq. Iraq had to be destroyed in order to be saved. Now, there's a third moment to this, which is maybe equally uncomfortable because it is so problematic, which is the history of post-war reconstructions. Uh, and one of them is, is the Marshall Plan reconstruction in, in Western Europe, where the U.S. essentially brought in uh, uh, fossil fuel oil infrastructures, but also essentially rebuild Western Europe through the permanent war economy. The other side of that was the Soviet and Chinese model, where, I mean, the Soviets were just destroyed twice within 30 years between uh, World War I and the civil wars in the teens and 20s and World War II, and had to find a way to rebuild the entire urban and industrial basis of, of their society. Now, do we want to replicate everything there? No. But are there important lessons? Yes. And we can look to China as well. And I mentioned this difficulty of how do we rebuild infrastructures in a way that's oriented towards justice. That was the problem of the Chinese experiment. People will, will say what they will about that. There were certainly a lot of problems that we don't need to whitewash, but we can say that the basic gist of it was how to be read an expert. How do you, how do you promote some measure of justice and some measure of the development of industry, agriculture, infrastructure? And the life expectancy in China improves by about 30 years between 1949 and 1975, which was extraordinary. We can look at Cuba after the end of cheap Soviet oil. So I think we need to get over our anti-communist hangups, not in the sense that the Soviets or the Cubans or the Chinese or whomever provide some glorious model for uh, post-capitalist society. No, clearly not. I mean, these were really poor countries that were always either under actual uh, threat of devastation and being destroyed or under the threat of devastation. So we have to wrestle with these big thorny questions of how do we repair and heal, but we're not going to repair and heal if we can't reconstruct our, our entire planetary infrastructure. Right, right, exactly. I want to conclude this discussion by reflecting for a moment on the issue of hope, which is a word that I notice appears pretty frequently in your work. I think it's among some corners of academia fallen on hard times to talk about hope, even among environmentalists. You know, one of our popular episodes involved a debate about this paradigm of deep adaptation, which sort of says collapse is inevitable. Um, and you have an interesting take on that, that collapse may actually not be so bad, understood in a certain way. And I wonder if you can say something about that and, and why you actually find hope in the possibility of the end of capitalist civilization as we know it. And what sustains you in this work? Because the capitalist scene uh, rages on despite so many uh, incredible efforts. You know, today is a global climate strike. Um, we've got Extinction Rebellion, been doing, I think, incredible work, but we continue to have challenges of moving forward any meaningful climate action to bring about a post-capitalist world. So what sustains you in the midst of this crisis? Well, there is precisely the most significant generational political uh, shift that we have seen since the 1960s. And climate is right at the center of that generational shift. Now, it also combines, even in, in a relatively rich country like the United States, with a generational sense that there are no jobs, we're over-indebted, the, the, the climate is a disaster. Uh, so the, this, there is this perfect storm of tensions that is coming up at this very moment. 
Now, historically, we want to recognize a basic fact, which is climate changes across the Holocene have been enormously destabilizing for ruling classes. So this was true with the, the collapse of Roman power in the West after the year 400. So that is roughly the beginning of what's called the Dark Ages Cold Period. The barbarian invasions themselves, while historians debate the precise significance of them, are expressive of a significant climate event, which was the worst drought in Eurasia over the past 2,000 years, occurred in the fourth century, which was pushing them into uh, Europe by 376, famously the Goths crossed the Danube and hilarity ensues. But the barbarian invasions in that case of the Goths being pushed um, by the climate changes across the Danube uh, was met with not just a great battle between the Goths and the Roman legions, but a general strike in what is today the Balkans and Greece, a general strike of miners and others, many of whom were Goths themselves. So here we have the metaphor of climate refugees and climate uh, destabilization right there in one of the classic moments of the crisis of, of Roman power in the West. Now, the collapse of Roman power in the West was, for the most part, a very good thing for the vast majority of people who lived in Central and Western Europe. It used to be, we called them the Dark Ages, but no longer. Now we understand that peasants reestablished village life, which had been destroyed by the Roman villa system, that they organized new uh, fertility relations, so breastfeeding went on much longer, fertility rates were lower. You can tell from the burial finds uh, that the archaeologists are looking at that uh, social equality was very great. It allowed for uh, a great diversity of survival strategies, so you weren't just growing wheat for the overlord. You were gathering uh, um, food in the forest, you were uh, fishing, you were uh, engaged in a whole diverse set of livelihood activities. So the standard of living actually improves, and only with the rise of Charlemagne and the Carolingian reaction and the reestablishment of class society under feudalism did the well-being of, of the, the everyday woman and man uh, suffer. So we have this counterintuitive history that the collapse of the 1% in any given era of climate crisis leads to a golden age in the standard of living for the vast majority. And we see this again if you fast forward a thousand years later to the crisis of feudalism, which is a climate crisis, but not just. And we tell this story in seven chief things. We say feudalism was not brought down by the climate or by climate and disease. It was brought down by all of that plus popular revolts. So what the ruling classes in Western Europe tried to do when the Black Death hit, and that was very much a, a climate-driven disease, is reimpose the most brutal forms of feudal exploitation. So we can think about that today, where capital is really trying to put us back into the most precarious forms of work, the gig economy, the uh, more ruthless policing of debt, the large-scale reproduction of an oppressive uh, and repressive police and military apparatus, all of these things are really trying to put us back into, say, capitalism before 1848. Uh, uh, and so we're looking at a uh, moment where the climate crises are incomparably greater in a physical, in a geophysical sense than any of those we've seen in the past 
But the popular movements are also mobilizing around this in really significant ways. Now, what everyone says is, well, the movements are weak and this and this and, and, and so, so forth. But that's the reality of the history of great revolts and revolutions. You never see them coming. You never see them coming until they do. So I think that there's a moment where if we can open up this conversation beyond abstract social limits, abstract natural limits, but rather put them all together where the, the physical and biological crises of the biosphere are intimately connected with precarious work, with racism and sexism and, and the growing class divide, where we can begin to see that environmental devastation isn't just something that's happening in Amazonia which it is, we also need to look at the core institutions of business as usual. So when I say Wall Street is a way of organizing nature, I don't mean that merely as a metaphor. If we are going to move forward with something like the Green New Deal, we need to have a democratic control over a savings and investment fund, an accumulation fund that can make democratic investments. Otherwise, it's just green capitalism. So we're at a moment where I think these questions are now coming up. And as thinkers, as communicators, as activists and researchers, what's near and dear to my heart and why I'm hopeful is that what I see is the spirit of what I call world ecology, but we could call it eco-civ, we could call it something else. But there is this wider conversation that seems to be breaking out in so many places and it's not people my age who are most receptive to it. It's scholars and activists in their 20s and, and 30s who are saying, yes, we need to connect all of this, these questions of oppression and sustainability and the political economy of capitalism into this conversation to ask these connective questions. I think you began by asking about holism. And environmental holism always excluded a lot. And then the, the radical social holisms always excluded a lot. And now we're at a moment where we can begin to put these two together. And I would like to think we can ask, we can start asking questions, not of how these are separate, but how they fit together. And that gives me hope. Well, Jason, thank you so much for being here today. Before we go, I just wanted to give you an opportunity if you have other forthcoming publications that you'd like to say something about or projects that you're involved with, um, this would be a good time. And I'll be sure to provide links in the show notes for anything that you mentioned. Well, thank you. I mentioned uh, uh, some of my essays and my books, most of which you can find on my website, which is jasonwmore.com. And then we've also talked about something called the World Ecology Conversation. Uh, we have a, this is a conversation of artists and activists and scholars and others who uh, incorporate all of those or defy all of those. Uh, uh, we have this ongoing conversation. We have an annual conference every year. You can find us on academia.edu under World Ecology, uh, but there are many other places you can find us as well. And this is one of the places that we can begin to have precisely the kinds of conversations you and your podcast has also been encouraging. So let's ask in this moment of crisis, how we can have these generative 
connective, convivial and comradely conversations. And that's so important because academics, radicals, like to be splitters. They like to find, how do we tear this apart? How do we take these things apart? Sometimes that's necessary, but in moderation. So how do we connect? And then how do we find politics that can both nourish us and that we can help shape in turn? Thank you so much. This has been a fantastic conversation and I just so appreciate your time. Um, I hope we can do it again sometime. I would love that. Thank you very much. All right. Thank you, Jason. Have a good day. Okay. Bye. Bye.